There's a there's a famous sketch by a British comedy group um, where in one particular scene there's this group of first century Jews that are sitting around and they're stewing kind of angrily about uh, the Roman occupation that they're living under. And one of them asks very, very again, very angrily, what have the Romans ever done for us? And then there's someone that responds, well, there's the roads. Yeah, okay, the roads. But other than the roads, what have the Romans ever done for us? And then someone else says, well, aqueducts. And then, okay, Roman roads, aqueducts. But what else have the Romans ever done for us, you know? And then they, it just goes on like that. And then it's, you know, sanitation and peace and education and medicine. And they just keep, keep rattling these things off. But that funny scene shows how easily we can take good things for granted without ever realizing their full impact in our lives. Now, I am not saying that the Roman occupation was a great thing for the Jews by any stretch of the imagination. There were a lot of bad things that came with that. But in line with that thought, we could ask ourselves today, what has the empty tomb ever done for us? What has it ever done for us? I mean, all Christians believe in Jesus' resurrection from the dead, but do we take it for granted? Do we assume it without realizing its full impact in our lives? How does it actually affect us on a, on a daily basis? That's what I want us to think today. And so in Acts, there's somewhat of a, a parallel to that comedy sketch that we can find. And so the book of Acts, essentially it flows right out of the empty tomb. So Jesus rises from the dead. So we have those gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those first four books of the, Old, of the New Testament. And then the next book is kind of transitional, and it's the book of Acts. And it's showing us that period of time from when Christ rose from the dead and the, the book opens with Jesus still on earth after the resurrection, before he ascended to the Father, to heaven. And so it starts there. So it comes right out of the empty tomb, but it doesn't end there. The resurrection runs right through. It's the major artery that runs through the book of Acts. And so in every place that it's in focus, there are these different aspects that are highlighted, different implications of the resurrection that are highlighted, showing, showing what the resurrection has accomplished, showing what the empty tomb has done for us. And so with that in mind, I want to group some of these accomplishments together under these kind of three broad headings this morning. Three points, that's what preachers tend to do, and so that's what we're going to do this morning. I don't want to disappoint you. So first, we're going to see that the empty tomb is the the center of our message. It's the center of our message. Second, it's the key to our victory. And third, it's the content of our hope. So first, the empty tomb, it's the center of our message. I could say it's the core of what we believe as Christians. And so the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's central to Christianity. It's not just kind of peripheral. It is is essential. It's why we celebrate the resurrection every spring and every Lord's Day. We we celebrate it because it makes all the difference for us. If, If this is true, the empty tomb, then Christianity is true. If it's not true, then Christianity is a sham. I believe that. 1 Corinthians 15, again, this is that great chapter on the resurrection. The Apostle Paul writes to this church in Corinth. And so he says in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, he kind of plays the what-if game, he says your faith is futile, and, and, and you, you are still in your sins. He goes on to say in the same chapter, if Christ hasn't been raised, then we've staked our lives on a lie, and we are of all people most to be pitied. But he goes on in a few verses and say, but Christ has been raised. So, so he kind of jumps out of that hypothetical game. But these, these are the words 
written by the Apostle Paul, who formerly, for much of his life, had been one of the fiercest opponents to Christianity. He hated Christ. He murdered Christians. And yet he saw the risen Lord who opened his eyes to the truth of who Jesus really is. And everything changed for him. And so the empty tomb, it's, it's the core of what we believe. That's the point Paul's making there in 1 Corinthians 15. A dead Savior is no Savior at all. Uh, we couldn't call him just like a good moral teacher that we have a lot of life lessons to learn from his example of, of just sacrificial living uh, if, he simply, if his body simply rotted in a grave because he would have been the, a wicked liar if that was the case. But a crucified and risen Savior is the very bedrock of our faith. It's, and, it's, and because it's the core of what we believe, that's the next thing, that the, those first Christians that we find in the book of Acts, this is what we're going to see, they couldn't stop talking about it. And so every speech, every sermon in Acts has the empty tomb as the centerpiece. It was their constant message. And it's to be our constant refrain as well, the empty tomb. I mean, just as a general rule in life, we tend to talk about the things that matter most to us. Uh, some of us, we, we, we pretend uh, that we really, you know, things really matter to us that really don't matter to us just because we want other people to be impressed by us. And so, you know, we, yeah, I love, I love uh, theater. I love, uh, you know, this ancient literature or something like that or quantum physics or something, you know. And so we might pretend and, and put on, put on airs. But, but when you really just start, when we start talking in just the normal course of life, the things that we talk about, kind of the, the, the places that our minds tend to go in our, 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 when we open our mouths, they tend to reveal what we really care a lot about, don't they? And so it's our hobbies, it's, you know, our, sometimes our appearance or food or, you know, political perspectives or funny YouTube videos or just whatever it is. The things that really excite us, the things that we really value, the things we care about, that's what we tend to talk about. Well, we can listen to what these first believers talked mostly about and see what mattered most to them. And so on, at the very beginning, and this is what Patrick alluded to, Acts chapter 2, if you're, if you're not already there, Acts chapter 2, this is on Pentecost, this Jewish feast, and you have these Jewish pilgrims that have gathered from all over the, the world, really, to come to Jerusalem, and it's there that the church begins with these thousands of Jewish pilgrims gathered in and around the temple. The gospel is proclaimed by the church for the first time. And, and what's the core of the message? Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, and so this is kind of jumping in the middle, but men of Israel, hear these words. Here's the crux of it. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So there was no denying, and no, no honest skeptic today denies the historical reality of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. He really lived. He really walked among us. And he was... He was really challenged by these religious leaders. It's well documented, more than any other historical fact. But then he goes on. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. See, the, the core, this is what he's getting at. Christ was crucified, he's risen. A little bit later, maybe a few days, maybe a, a couple weeks, but Peter and John, they're, 
these early apostles, they're back in the temple again and they're talking to people again. And God heals this lame man through them. The Lord does it through Peter and John. And they use that, this incredible miracle, as this opportunity to, to point everybody that sees this and is listening to them, to point them to the most important message. And it's that God sent Jesus to us that, and this is in chapter 3, verse 15, that, but you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. And to that, we are witnesses. This, is, this was their job description. We're witnesses of the resurrection. This is what we're testifying to. Just one chapter later, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Peter's at it again. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed. Why are they so annoyed by the Peter and the others here? Because they're teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And this ended up leading to their arrest. In chapter 4 we see this, and once again. And so now they're standing before the religious court, and they just keep saying the same thing. This is their constant refrain. Verse 8, Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit and says to the rulers of the people and the elders, this man was healed in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead. Later on, after the church is growing and is flourishing in Jerusalem there, and the gospel moves outside of Jerusalem, Peter takes the message uh, not just to the Jews, but to a Gentile, to a non-Jew, this guy named Cornelius. And once again, what's the focus of what Peter's saying to him? It's, it's the resurrection. Acts chapter 10, this is in Acts 10, verse 39, we are witnesses of all that Jesus did both in the country of the Jews and Israel and in, and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day. And it says he went on and, it, and he appeared to many people. So he just keeps going on, preaching the resurrection everywhere and anywhere that he goes to anybody who will listen. He just, he, this is the constant refrain. But it's not just Peter. Not just Peter, who, 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 for whom this, this is the center of our message, the, 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 the constant refrain. No. Saul, again, he's the one that I said. He was this violent persecutor of the church. He confronted, he's confronted by the resurrected Christ. He puts his faith in Jesus. And he, and, and he the, the very one that he used to persecute. And now his name has changed to Paul. And he starts, he starts preaching as well. So his very first sermon on his very first mission trip, we could say, in Acts chapter 13, verse 32, we see this. And we bring you the good news, the gospel, that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Raising Him from the dead. And Paul, this former esteemed Jewish rabbi, he goes on to show how Jesus' resurrection is the fulfillment of these Old Testament promises, this prophecy, citing a couple of Psalms, one that we read together just a moment ago, Psalm 16. And he goes on to say this in verse 36 of Acts 13. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up, Jesus, did not see corruption. Later in the book of Acts, and again, we're skipping over other references, but he's, he's talking to a totally different crowd in Athens. All these philosophers, all these big movers and shakers and that, 
kind of that culture, these skeptics. And what's he doing? Acts chapter 17, verse 18, the text says he was simp- he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Preaching Jesus and the resurrection. When, we, when he gets into trouble with the authorities and because he's preaching the gospel, preaching this message, and he's he, he, he goes before Felix and he goes before Festus and he goes before Agrippa and he goes, he's on trial before Jews in Rome. Every time, what's he, what's he come back to? It's the resurrection. In one of the last scenes of the book, he's before Felix, who's the Roman governor over Judea and Samaria at that time. And he's on trial. He's accused, he's been accused of being a troublemaker, of desecrating the temple, which he didn't do anything, either of those things. But these false charges are brought against him and brought to him, but Paul sums up the real issue that they have with him. And he says, it's with, it is with respect, this is Acts chapter 24, verse 21, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am actually on trial before you this day. That's it. This is what it's about. So all of his, one, one, one person said, his death trials at the end of his life become opportunities for resurrection testimony. That's how he uses them. This is the thing that matters most. So this is what he talks about. Whether to large crowds or religious leaders or civil authorities, every time early, the early Christians spoke in the book of Acts, every time they communicated, their message centered on the cross and the empty tomb. Someone, has, again, has said all those speeches without, throughout the books are in essence resurrection reports. It's just, it's everywhere. And so the empty tomb, it's the core of what we believe. It's, it's to be the constant refrain on our lips. Not once a year, but all the time. Christ crucified and risen again. Christianity, listen, I know we, we sometimes have this perspective, if, if you're, particularly if you've just kind of been observing, it could, it could seem like, and some of us have this idea that Christianity is all about rules, and it's about this system of morality, and it's about you know, uh, personal betterment, or it's about spiritual experiences, or all of these different things. And I'm not saying Christianity doesn't involve some of those things, but it is ultimately about Christ. It's, it's, this, is the, this is the foundation. It's, it's a person. It's Jesus Christ, the message of God loving us so much that He sent His own Son, Jesus, to live among us, to suffer for us, to die in our place, and to rise again on the third day. That's the core. That's the essence. And so the empty tomb, it's the center of our message. Secondly, the empty tomb, it's the key to our victory. It's the key to our victory. We talk about victory in all kinds of different contexts. I mean, there's discussion of what military victory will look like right now in Eastern Europe and, and, and what's going to be necessary for Ukraine to you know, hold off the Russians or even from the Russian perspective. I'm sure they're talking. What, how can they achieve victory? We think in sports. NBA playoffs are going on right now, if any of you care. And uh, uh, or we, yeah, there's a lot of baseballs going on. So, so that I know we think in, in, the, in that realm of victory. I mean, there's all kinds of realms, you know, singing competitions, American Idol, other music competitions. We, we think in that realm of victory. But when you start talking like that, or, you know, what does it take? There are always experts, right? There are or want to be experts on Facebook. Uh, but there are people who, who have very strong opinions and, and commentators who will talk about what's going to be the key to victory. What's the key to victory here? So if it's military, you know, maybe it's controlling the airspace. That's the key to victory. If it's, you know, basketball, it's, it's controlling the paint. We got to keep them out of the, keep them, keep them out of the paint. 
music and picking the right song. That's the key, something like that. But certainly, if you think of military, military historians, there's all kinds of books. Look back after wars have been fought and won, battles have been won. Military historians will look back and say, well, here, here was the key, or here were the keys to victory. Well, as we think of this, Christ, Christ is victorious. And we have this victory in Him and through Him by faith. And the key to our victory, we could say, in Christ, I believe, is the empty tomb. That's what, the, that's what Acts lays out for us. I, and when I say the empty tomb, obviously that, that implicit in that is, is the death of Jesus Christ because he, he, he rose from the dead and, and that implies his sufferings. That implies his perfect life, which implies that God sent Jesus. So I'm saying there's more, but, but as, the, as they speak, the way they talk, the way this, the book of Acts is written, there's this emphasis on the resurrection, the empty tomb. It's the key to our victory. And so we see this victory evidenced in several ways. i just give you four ways. And there's, there, were, there are others. Victory in life and power for the dying. Life and power for the dying. Listen, it's not a very happy Easter thought, but we are all dying. We are. I mean, you think about it. What we call living is, in a sense, dying. I mean, we're all moving in that direction. Sometimes death tra- comes tragically and early and unexpectedly, and I know many of you have experienced that pain of that loss. Sometimes it's slow, and it's after this long drawn out, slow, dying process. But as we often say, the statistics on death are quite impressive. That one out of one people die. So we're we're all we're all dying. And yet the fact that Jesus conquered death and he rose from the grave, it holds this prospect of life, of life to us as we live in this world full of dying. And so we read a few moments ago uh, part of Peter's message. So if you want to go back to the Acts chapter 2, to where we started. Acts chapter 2. This is, again, Peter's message at Pentecost. So he says, you, you killed, you crucified and killed Jesus, verse 23. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So he's saying, death could not triumph over him. It couldn't get the last word. And so... He's there's sort of this personification of death here. The, the grave, the grave thought it won victory of, over Christ. And he's going to say later in chapter 4, but the author of life, it, he choked death to death, we could say, when he rose from the dead. And in Christ, we share in that victory. I mean, 1 Corinthians 15, again, that great resurrection chapter. You don't need to turn there, but just listen to these words that speak of this victory over death, over the grave. This is, again, the kind of the conclusion of this great chapter. Verse 55 of 1 Corinthians 15. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's part of the victory. It's just life. It's power for, for us who are dying. And this Christ accomplished victory over death. It was announced long before Jesus even came. And so Peter, again, in Acts 2, if you're still there, he goes on to tie that event of Jesus' resurrection to an Old Testament promise. We alluded to this, that Psalm 16. This was a song that David wrote a thousand years before Christ came. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 25 to 28 there. But, but as he's saying this, he's looking ahead to this promised Messiah, this promised one who would come. And he said, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, the place of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption, see decay, see death. And he goes on, verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, what he's saying is, David couldn't have been prophesying about himself when he said the Holy One wouldn't see corruption or decay or go to the place of Hades. He couldn't be talking about himself. I mean, they could take a field trip to the place where David's body was buried, where it decayed, and here lies David. I mean, they could walk down there and see it. Nobody denied that. And, and, and so was David wrong? No, this is what Peter's point, because he wasn't ultimately talking about himself. He was talking about this promised descendant who would come after him. And he goes on, being therefore a prophet, David was speaking prophetically and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades the place of the dead, nor did his flesh see corruption. So Jesus fulfills this promised victory over death, over corruption, over decay. Sin brought death. The wages of sin is death, Paul says in Romans 6.23. But Jesus defeated death and he provides for us victory in Christ. That means we don't have to fear death anymore. And we're going to die physically, but we, we have the hope of life beyond the grave. The grave isn't the end, and that cannot be accomplished apart from Jesus' defeat of death with his resurrection. So there's victory in life and power for the dying. Secondly, there's victory in freedom and forgiveness for sinners, for sinners like me and you. See, our problem is is that we can't know that that we can't know that life that God provides through Jesus that He accomplished for His resurrection if we're still under God's judgment for our sin. And so, part of the victory that Jesus provided through His death and resurrection is His forgiveness, its redemption, setting us free from the bondage of the curse. And so, we see this in a number of places again as these apostles are preaching and they're connecting the resurrection to what that means then for us. This is one of the big implications. It's forgiveness. It's freedom for sinners. Acts 3.26, God raised Jesus to bring sinners out of wickedness. Look at Acts chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Uh, He says, there's salvation in no one else. No one else other than the crucified and risen Jesus in the context there. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Only Christ. Chapter 5, verse 30 and 31. God raised Jesus from the dead. He exalted Him. Why? To give forgiveness of sins. Acts chapter 10, verse 42 to 43. Again, this is Peter speaking to Cornelius. God raised Jesus on the third day, verse 40, so that He is the one that all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. And one other passage in Acts chapter 13. This is, again, Paul now preaching on his first missionary journey. 
Verse 37, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, again, in the context, the one that God raised up who did not see corruption, he's just said this, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So Jesus, the perfect, righteous one, the one who knew no sin, who never did wrong. What happened? He bore our sins in his body on the cross. He suffered in our place. He paid the penalty for our wrongdoings when he was crucified. He endured the wrath of God that we deserved for all of our trespasses. And as Jesus, the, our divine sin bearer, then died and then rose from the dead, he provides forgiveness, freedom. Freedom from sin that we can know life with God. And so all who look to Christ in faith, we can find forgiveness of our sins. We can find freedom from that curse of our bondage that we're, we've, had, we've been in since birth. But wait, there's even more. <laughs> Sound like an infomercial here, but what else has the empty tomb ever done for us? Well, there's more. There's victory in, in this. It's, there's comfort and courage for sufferers. Comfort and courage for sufferers. So when, when, when uh, Peter and John are threatened by the Jewish authorities and the other apostles, they want to, they want to, honestly, they want to kill them. They make that clear in Acts chapter 5. They wanted to kill the apostles, all of them, because they wouldn't obey their orders. They, they ordered them to stop preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus, and they wouldn't. And we see this courageous response from those early apostles. And it's not, as we talked about over the last few weeks, it's not this kind of chest-pounding bravado, bravado like, hey, I'm afraid of you. That's, it's not that. What is it that accounts for their courage? It's, it's that they witnessed Christ's resurrection, and it's completely changed them. And so in, in Acts chapter 5, verse 29 Again, in, in light of these threats and this questioning by these authorities that have the power to kill them, basically. Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. We can't stop talking about Christ, who's crucified and risen, and is the only way of salvation. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him as his at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. Again, we could spend a lot of time on this point and, and we could walk through Acts and we just see throughout this, this book of Acts, there is this unstoppable joy and confidence that they have that, that you can't get away from despite the incredibly difficult circumstances that they're facing, being beaten and being threatened and being imprisoned and being having their belongings seized and being stoned and, and being mocked and ridiculed relentlessly, being disowned by their families. They're enduring all of these difficulties, and yet we find them rejoicing and singing and continuing to proclaim this message that's getting them in so much trouble that Christ died and rose again so that you could have salvation in His name alone. Why? Why did they do it? Because their lives were so gripped by the reality of the empty tomb. It was Jesus' victory. It was so alive and it was so fresh to them and so transforming of them. They, they, they wouldn't be stopped. 
And we'll see this next section that we're in in Acts on Sunday mornings. Next Sunday, actually, we're going to be looking at Stephen. He's the very first Christian martyr. We find his account in Acts 6 and 7 and even into 8. And so this, the Jewish authorities there, they make up all this stuff about him and his teaching, and they, 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 he, he, they arrest him, and he's tried as this blasphemer. And, and, and he doesn't, he's falsely charged, but he doesn't rage in anger. But he's, he is unafraid before these guys. He knows they can kill him, and they will. But his, his eyes, his eyes were once just as blind as the people who so hate him now. He used to rebel against this truth of who Jesus is. He used to reject the message of the gospel, but grace broke in. And so now he's pleading with them to see, see the reality of, of, of Christ, pleading with him to see the truth concerning Jesus. And, and as he's being stoned to death, and as he's facing his last moments, it's this vision that he has of the res, risen and reigning Christ that gives comfort to him in that darkest hour of his life. Listen, I, I know some of you really well, and I've known some of you for 20-plus years, um, and we've gotten to know each other. I just count so many of you some of my dearest and closest friends, and certainly my family and my wife and my kids, I know them well. There's others of you that I haven't even met yet, and I hope to do that today, and, and I'll count you as new friends. But I know something about every single person in here today. I, I know it about you. And it's this, is you're dealing with some kind of difficulty or suffering in your life. I can count on it. Um, it may be particularly intense right now. And some of you maybe just crawled through the door, and you're just desperate for some, some hope to cling to right now, some comfort. Others of you, maybe this is a season where it's not, it's, it's a little more mild right now, but, but it's going to come, and you've probably already experienced those really intense types of sufferings. But there's, there's great encouragement and comfort for sufferers like us as we consider the truth of the empty tomb. And it's this, is you, you think, we, were, we had our Good Friday service Friday night, and we looked at Gethsemane, but you, you think of that scene of the crucifixion of Jesus. On Good Friday, I mean, all hell seemed to break loose. It was, it's dark, it's ugly, it's awful, it's chaotic. The Savior King has died. It looks like sin and suffering and death are going to get the last word and they're going to finally have the final word and win over the Lord. Could God really be in control? I mean, that's, that's kind of the sense you, you should feel as you consider Good Friday. But here we are on Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday, when God raised Jesus from the dead, he, he proved that he was sovereign over evil. He couldn't be thwarted. His plans couldn't be thwarted. God had not left his throne on that terrible, wonderful day of Good Friday when our Savior died. And he has not left his throne today, brothers and sisters and friends. He is still, he is risen and he reigns as king, sits at the right hand of God, and he rules over this world. There's tremendous comfort. Comfort for sufferers like us. There's victory in that. Last way we see this victory, not the last way, but the last I'm going to draw attention to, is there's truth and there's confidence for doubters. Truth and confidence for doubters. 
So again, back in chapter 2, we, we find uh, in that context of, of Pentecost, as Peter's preaching, he says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And then he says in verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. What are you saying? The empty tomb is the exclamation point on on. The fact that Jesus is who He said He is and He does what He says He can do. He's, he's, it's true. It's, we can believe this with certainty. Later on, Paul, again, in Acts 17, he's, he's there at Mars Hill in Athens with all of these uh, you know, high, highfalutin thinkers and philosophers and orators of the day. And he's there. And these are a lot of smart people that are assembled on that hill. And none of them believe in the resurrection of Jesus. None of them. They're all skeptics. So he's invited to speak in this very hostile context. And he speaks for a while. Acts chapter 17. And then we'll pick it up in verse 30. And he, and he turns the corner and kind of begins to really focus in his message. In verse 30, he says, The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. To repent. To change your minds. Change the way you're thinking about Jesus, change the way you're thinking about your own self before the Lord. That was, that was quite an offense to these, again, movers and shakers of the day. But then he goes on. So he, everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he says, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You know what that says? Is the resurrection of Jesus. It's the reality of the empty tomb that was witnessed by so many people. It cannot be denied. It's, it puts an end to all of the philosophies that reject the truth, the reality of the truth of Jesus Christ from Paul's day to the Enlightenment to today. And so we, as Christians, we can be bolstered by the, by the fact there's truth. And, and this is truth. When a man dies and goes into the grave and is buried... And then he comes back to life three days later and appears to hundreds of witnesses. That man is the sole authority on all things truth. He knows the truth. He is the truth, John 14, 6. And so, so the empty tomb, it's, it's, it's the center of our message. It's the key to our victory. God, and what I mean, when it, and so if we could pull this back, what I mean is God doesn't tell us. What you need to do is you need to pick yourselves up by the bootstraps, as we'd say in the South, you need, to, you need to win the battle on your own, through your own striving, through your own willing, through your own efforts, through your own morality, through your own commitments and your vows and sacrifices. You, you pick yourself up and you win the victory. That's not what he says. Instead, he invites all of us. There's these appeals in the Gospels. If you're weary, if you're, if you're weary from... from the effort and from the striving and from the failing and the sinning. If you're weary, come to Christ and rest in His victory. The victory that Jesus has provided. The victory isn't ours by our effort or our performance. It's, it's, it's ours by grace that He's provided for us in Christ. We receive what we could not earn through the accomplishment of another. And so, the empty tomb, it's the key 
to our victory in Jesus. And the last thing, we'll be quick. The, the empty tomb is the content of our hope. We could all use some hope right now, couldn't we? I, I think, I mean, just in the world, and I mean, it's in short supply these days, and in our world, in our lives, in our thoughts. Um, and so you may be, again, you may be particularly despairing today, and, and, and you came today as sort of a last-ditch effort to just find some shred of hope, and if that's you, I... I, I'm, I'm, my heart is heavy for you, but I'm thankful you're here. And I hope that you'll see hope in the empty tomb. So to hope lacking people, the empty tomb speaks a powerful word to us. In fact, seven times in the book of Acts, the word hope is connected to the resurrection directly. So it's one of the most, one of the strong implications that comes out of this, this resurrection preaching in Acts. And so Christ's resurrection, it's, it's what we look back to we look back at Jesus' resurrection as the grounds of our hope, and we'll see that. But it's also uh, the way the Bible talks. It's our, it's our resurrection, our future resurrection of our own bodies is something we look forward to. And that's part of the hope. So the Bible talks about Christ's resurrection being, it's called the first fruits of our own. So you, you, you know, most people, I was always told by farmers around here, don't plant your gardens till after Easter. Now, Easter shifts every year, but I've listened to that. I heard that when I, early when I came to Georgia, and I've listened to it every time. And I'm always glad because there are some times, and even if uh, there is a frost or something after, after or before Easter, kind of late spring. We've had some of those recently. Anyway, that's aside. So you're about to, some of you are planting your gardens, and, and isn't that exciting when you get those first fruits? You plant that tomato plant or, you know, that cantaloupe vine or something, and you get that. You get that first one, and what is that? It's telling you, okay, the plant's healthy, it's producing fruit, there's going to be more to follow. So I can, I can see this first fruit and know that there's more fruit coming. That's, that's, the, that's the idea, that's the word picture. So if Christ has been raised, we too will one day be raised. Death is not going to get the last word. And this is why we have hope. Uh, even that word hope, I know sometimes we think of hope, it's, it's kind of watered down to sort of wishful thinking. Like yeah, you know, I hope the hope the Braves win. I, I, I hope the Hawks can make it all the way through the playoffs. That's big time wishful thinking, I think, this year. But um, we did thought that last year, and they did really well. But um, but the, the 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 word for hope here, it's the Greek word is is elpis, and it just mean, it means a settled conviction, a settled conviction that God's promises of future realities are inevitable and preferable. So a settled conviction that God's promises of future realities are inevitable and they're preferable. So it's a settled conviction. It's confidence. It's knowing that our future is true because God has promised it. And it's knowing that our future is better. It's preferable. The best is still yet to come. And so we have this resurrection hope. And the content of our hope is the empty tomb. And so our resurrection hope, a couple things. It's a head. It's ahead. And so Paul, again, he's preaching the gospel of Christ, and he's been arrested again. Uh, he's standing before, again, this is Felix in Acts chapter 24, the governor of, of the Roman governor of that area. And he's full of hope, though, as he testifies before this, this powerful man. And he speaks in Acts 24, verse 15. He speaks of having hope, having a hope in God that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. That's, that's the hope. And, and, and it's in that context of testifying. This is, this is why I'm on trial. It's because of the resurrection. 
And at the center of Paul's hope is the resurrection of Christ. And the prospect of the resurrection of our bodies is based upon the reality of the empty tomb. Paul elaborates this. If you just want to look up later, we don't have time. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 20 to 24. This is again where he talks about Christ being the first fruits and then then the just will be raised and then the unjust will be raised to judgment. And, and so, but for those of us who are in Christ, if your faith is in Him, if you're, if you're in Jesus by faith, listen, we are looking forward to a day and a time when every tear will be wiped away. This is how the Scriptures speak. There will be no more sin. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more COVID or cancer. There will be no more struggle. There will no, be no more despair or depression. There will be no more wars, no more hospitals, no more abuse, no more funerals. This is our hope. It's not wishful thinking. This is settled conviction, settled confidence. And we have this settled conviction that God's promises of these future realities are both inevitable and preferable. And that's all rooted in the past resurrection of Jesus, the first fruits. So our hope isn't just in a stronger economy right now. It's not... It's not just in the, some medical breakthrough that's going to put an end to a pandemic. It's not just peace talks or diplomacy that will end conflict in Ukraine or other parts of the world. Our hope is in remembering the future that God has for us. Eternity in His presence with Him. And the empty tomb, it's the blazing center of that hope. And then the last thing I would just say, our resurrection hope, then, it's alive. It's alive. It's alive. First Peter 1, Peter is the one who went from being a coward to being courageous, and it wasn't because he went and saw the Wizard of Oz. It's, it's, because, it's because he witnessed the resurrection of Jesus, and he says in 1 Peter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's just overflowing with praise. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Living hope, not wishful hope, not sickly hope, not anemic hope. I mean a hope that's alive. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that's how we're born again to this living hope, to this inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, ready to be revealed in the last day. And that hope, that hope gives us stability, gives us joy, gives us confidence. And he goes on to say in chapter 3, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Resurrection gives us hope so much so that people are like scratching their heads saying, how are they hopeful right now with all that's going? And he's writing to these Christians who are suffering tremendously. I mean, do we live in this world? Is, do people, are people like marveling at your hope? And if so, is the only explanation you can give them, Christ is risen. This is why I hope. So what has the empty tomb done for us? Well, it's done everything. It's done everything. The death and resurrection of Jesus is where everything leads from. It's where everything, everything flows from, everything leads to. It's the center of our message. It's the core of what we believe. It's the constant refrain from our lips. It's the, it's the key to our victory, life and power for us who are dying, uh, freedom and forgiveness for sinners like us. It's comfort and, and, and courage for sufferers like us. It's truth and conviction for doubters like us. And it's the content of our unshakable living hope. As I mentioned earlier, we know death is certain, don't we? We're all, 
We're all going to die. But if the resurrection isn't true, if there's no life beyond the grave, then what's the best thing we can do? Just kind of try to stay along as live as live as long as possible. Eat all organic food. You know, stay away from salt and sugar, all the good tasty stuff, and no bacon. Sorry, no donuts. No good things. Just squeeze all you can out of this short time on earth. I think deep down, though, we know that's not enough. We can't stave off death. The question then becomes, how are we going to face it? There were those in, in Paul's day that just said, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's kind of this nihilistic view. Again, we know that's not enough. Are we going to depend on being good, moral people, better than others? Are we going to rely on something a priest told us a long time ago or or on our childhood baptism or ritual or something like that? Are we going to trust in our family ties or our intellect or our uh, rational abilities or our money or our whatever? Again, in Acts 17, Paul's talking to these kind of intelligent, self-sufficient, well-to-do, influential people on Mars Hill, and he says what? We read this earlier. He is fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, Jesus. And he's saying, in other words, judgment's coming. Are you prepared? And of this he has given proof to all by raising him from the dead. So because Jesus rose from the dead, you can be certain that judgment is coming. And the question is, are you ready? Am I ready? Do you think you can plead your case before the judge of all the earth? I can just Let me just tell you, you don't have a case. I don't have a case. We don't. God is holy. He's perfect. He is without sin. We are sinners. We've broken God's law. We've done things he told us not to do. We haven't done things he's told us to do. And the Bible says if you're guilty of one transgression, you're guilty of them all. So the qualification for heaven, according to Scripture, is be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, All right, I'm looking around. Yep, we're all disqualified. And so where's the hope? This is the hope. Jesus came to do, and he did, what we could never do. He lived a perfect life. He perfectly obeyed God's law. In every point, he was tempted to sin, just like we are, Scripture says, but he never did. And and, and that's staggering. For 30 years, he lived this way. And yet, and this is what we're celebrating this time of year, yet he suffered, he died on the cross, not for his sins, but he died for ours. The Bible makes this very clear. The just one for the unjust. And so, yes, there were humans involved in Jesus' crucifixion. In the, we've read those, you know, you killed him. You put the hands of the lawless men. He was put to death. But there was a lot more going on. While Jesus was on the cross, there was this darkness that fell uh, for, for three hours. And all of the Father's wrath was poured out upon Jesus. Not for his sins again, but for our sins. And then Jesus said these stunning words, It is finished. It's finished. And then he died. The price for sin had been paid. Jesus died as our substitute. He lived the life we couldn't live so that he could pay the debt of sin we could never pay in his death. But he didn't stay dead. He rose on the third day. And so Romans 10, verse 9 and 10, words that we love. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will die physically, yes, but you can be saved by faith in Christ. And he goes on, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I mean, Jesus himself said, this is as he was 
with his disciples, anticipating his own death and resurrection. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So we must prepare for eternity now by trusting in the crucified and risen Christ. We'd love to talk with you more about that. If you have questions, we'd love for you to, to know this salvation today. If you don't already know it, and if you do, just celebrate with us. And if you just have questions, that's fine. We're not, there's no pressure. We're not going to any kind of anything like that. If you're still skeptical, that's fine. We are here. We care. We love you. We, do not, we are not trying to win arguments or anything like that. We don't know everything, but we know and we love Jesus. And, and we know that he loves you. And we do, we do long for others to know this life of forgiveness and, and, and the life and the forgiveness and the hope that's found in Christ. And so if you have questions, please talk with us in a moment. We're going to sing in just a moment uh, a song, and then we have this great opportunity. We're going to hear from a man who has experienced the resurrection of life that Jesus has provided, and we're going to rejoice in, as we get to witness his baptism this morning. So let me pray, and then we'll sing together. Thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you for what it's done for us, for what you have done for us, Jesus. And so I pray that if there are any here today who haven't been forgiven of their sins, they haven't been freed from this bondage, they haven't experienced this new life, they, they lack the hope of a bright future with you, Lord. May today be the day they look to Christ in faith and are born again to a living hope. And, 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 and we pray that for all of us as we get to sing now, as we get to celebrate with, uh, alongside a brother in Christ and his baptism, just give us great joy in our hearts, thankfulness for the victory that is ours in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.